I think my greatest worry is like people constantly shuffling in and out of the shelters and like whether that's trying to like work and provide for the family or trying to buy food or something. I'm just afraid that like somehow the virus is going to infiltrate and it's going to spread very, very quickly within the shelters especially. Welcome to a special episode of Beyond Soundbites podcast. I'm Jacob Mel. If you're a new listener, this podcast seeks to humanize the issues of forced displacement and mass migration by bringing forth the personhood of displaced people through sharing their voices. We try to keep front and center the truth that every single person who becomes a refugee, migrant, or asylum seeker is created in the image of God and loved by Him with a depth we cannot comprehend. In the midst of COVID-19, this truth takes on a particular weight. How do you guard yourself and your loved ones from a deadly virus if you're a Syrian family living on Red Crescent rations in southern Turkey? Or if you're one of India's millions of migrant workers who sleep in the same space as you work and whose government has just issued a total shutdown of all non-essential businesses? Or if your dwelling place is a cramped ICE detention center in Texas? In the coming weeks, we'll hear some brief words in each episode from people around the globe who are doing frontline work with communities of displaced people as COVID-19 continues to spread. The goal is to introduce you to what some of the pressure points are in different regions so that we can unite together in prayer and when possible take concrete supportive action. It's not an easy time to maintain a spirit of concern for displaced people. Our own communities and families are riddled with worry. Our mutual funds are taking nosedives. We fear for our own jobs. Many wonder if we're carrying a threat to global health inside our own body, leaving traces of it on anything we touch. We've begun to hear about friends of friends who have fallen ill or lost their lives. I pray that under the weight of such hardships, we'll find points of empathy toward those who have long faced instability, isolation, and loss. I pray that in the midst of our own lonesomeness and fear, we won't cease to look toward people in the margins of society and take actions to care for them as we ourselves would want to be cared for. So let's get started. In this episode, we'll focus on the communities of El Paso and Juarez on the U.S.-Mexico border. I was there in mid-February, back when the first death caused by COVID-19 outside of Asia had just been reported and most people in the Western Hemisphere, including myself, had barely heard of coronavirus. These men already sort of gave like the how it started, but... uh, Gustavo, a shelter coordinator with Abara Frontiers, showed me around a shelter for migrant people on the outskirts of Juarez, a place called Pan de Vida, Bread of Life where about 190 people, mostly Central Americans, were staying at the time. Just let me know if you have more questions. Feel free to interrupt. Gustavo had been there dozens of times to coordinate projects and hang out with the migrant families over the last few months. And he had a lot of friends. There's not time in this episode to share all the details about what's been going on in border communities since the beginning of 2019, but here's at least a crude summary. 
Pan de Vida is one of about 30 shelters that sprang up in Juarez since the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy, formerly called Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, took effect in the El Paso region in June of 2019. The long and short of it is, the new MPP rules have caused tens of thousands of migrant people, mostly Central Americans, to bottleneck in Mexican border communities while they wait to report to border checkpoints for the court hearings through which their claim for asylum is either affirmed or denied. Before MPP, people seeking asylum would be screened, allowed into the states, sent along to live with friends or family, often with an ankle monitor, and required to report to their court proceedings within the United States. Altogether, about 60,000 people have been put into the MPP program. When I was in Juarez, local groups estimated there were between 7 and 10,000 migrant people in the city. Migrant advocates have a slew of criticisms against MPP, the main ones being that it's poorly and inconsistently implemented. It puts vulnerable people at unnecessary risk of being kidnapped, extorted, and raped by gangs and cartels in Mexico and it places legal and logistical barriers to gaining asylum for people who should have legitimate claims. And this was all before there was a global pandemic threatening the city. At Pan de Vida that day, we spoke with one man named Francisco, an agricultural worker from Nicaragua who had been at the shelter a week with his wife and two daughters, a three-year-old and a 14-year-old. They feared returning to their country because Francisco had received death threats after protesting the government of President Daniel Ortega in 2018. There are three moments from our conversation that I'd like to share with you. Francisco wasn't the man's real name. When we asked him how he'd like to be identified in the interview, he told me jokingly, Bruce Willis. (laughs) (laughs) Then we settled on Francisco. Francisco Willis. (laughs) <laughs> it made for a good joke to revisit over the course of our conversation. At one point, Francisco's daughter came over to where we were sitting in the late afternoon shadow of one of the shelter buildings. Hola. Hola. She must have heard us talking about her. <laughs> There was a small playground in the yard, and she was upset that no one would push her on the swing. Dile cómo te llamas. After his little girl ran back to the playground, I asked Francisco about what his hopes are for his kids. His face broke with emotion. He stared down at the table for a long time. Then he finally looked up and spoke. En realidad no, no quisiéramos ni siquiera Estados Unidos ni México, quisiéramos estar en nuestra tierra. 
He said, in reality, we don't really want to be in the United States or Mexico. We wish we could stay in our land, our country, not even in the United States. We want to have the living conditions necessary so our children can grow up happy, so that at least they have the opportunity to pursue a university degree, so that there can be satisfactory economic and working conditions, so they don't have to be in another country. But unfortunately, we don't have this, so we have to adapt to a shelter like this. We don't want to. I don't want to be in Mexico. I don't want to be in the United States. It doesn't really interest me, but it's necessary. Who doesn't want to grow up and live in their own country, on their own ground, right? What we're here, and if it passes, perhaps we'll be able to return. We don't know when we'll go back to see our parents, our cousins, our families, our friends, back to everything, everything that we've left behind. We don't know. We don't know if we'll return, or if today we'll go out into the streets and if they'll shoot us, hit us with bullets, even though we're innocent. We don't know. So really, we don't want to be here not here or in the United States. We wish we could be in our country. It was a truly vulnerable moment in our interview. I'm so grateful to Francisco for entrusting me and Gustavo, and now all of you as listeners, with his words, his emotions. He went on to describe how his family had been staying in Mexico City, a 24-hour bus ride south, and traveling back and forth to Juarez every time they had to report to the border for one of their MPP hearings because Juarez didn't feel safe to them. But they were at the shelter now because they didn't have enough money to keep going back and forth. Their next hearing was in two weeks. Take a moment to reflect on your own sense of frailty in the midst of COVID-19. Your fears, the sense of losing control over your future for yourself and for your family, how it feels when your own community suddenly becomes an unsafe place. Think about the resilience and the faith you have to summon to keep going. I don't mean for us to diminish Francisco's situation by comparing it to our own, being ordered to stay in my apartment and watch Netflix is not the same thing as moving a wife and two kids across Mexico to a shelter on a prayer that we would be granted access to a safe and stable country. But if there's ever a time when we'd be filled with empathy and a sense of mutuality with displaced people, it's now. And from that place of mutuality and empathy, we're called forward toward acts of love and sacrificial action. A few days ago, I spoke again with the Ibarra team, this time over the phone. Their other shelter coordinator, Blanca, explained some of the issues that they're navigating as they work with the shelters in Juarez to try to prepare for COVID-19. She spelled out some of the practical responses, and she invited you and I to be a part of it. I think my greatest worry is, like, people constantly shuffling in and out of the shelters and, like, whether that's trying to, like, work and provide for the family or trying to buy food or something. I'm just afraid that, like, somehow the virus is going to infiltrate and it's going to spread very, very quickly within the shelters, especially. 
even though many of like the shelters and the coordinators there have like put in like a lot of effort in improving the conditions of their spaces, like not all of them meet the most ideal necessary like basic qualities to you know take care or to hope to house a very sick child or a very vulnerable elderly person. So um, to begin with, these are not comfortable spaces. Honestly, it's like a last resort for many migrants who just literally don't have the means to be able to to continue to support themselves as they wait for their asylum trial to take place. The UNHCR, OIM, um, the International Red Cross have put out meetings and distributed materials on how to um, basically warnings for COVID-19 and the proper ways to assess and to take preventative measures in the shelters. OAM has been very successful. And I think it was just this past weekend, they were distributing out hygiene supplies, everything from hand sanitizers to toilet paper um, in mass. However, they do not have enough or did not have enough to cover all the shelters in Juarez. As of the day we talked, March 26th, the U.S.-Mexico border had been closed to all but essential crossings for several days. Abara and a team of other organizations on the El Paso side were doing all their coordination with the Juarez side remotely. The government had not yet issued non-essential businesses to close in Juarez, but some were starting to shutter their doors anyway. I asked Blanca if she had been in touch directly with many migrant families recently. I've been in communication with a few families. Mostly they've just been trying to adhere to whatever um, direction they're shelter coordinators have been giving them. They've been trying to take really good care of their hygiene or as much as they can with the limited materials they have in the shelters. Most times it's really like families with like small children or like newborn babies that are especially they're especially fearful. I know moms are like they're uh, they're a bit terrified that anything would happen to their children. They're like wondering whether they should allow them to leave to go out. Many of the parents have stopped working either because of closures in business or they're just like paranoid that anything outside of the shelters could affect them. But even then, there's some that like, I mean, in some shelters, they can only provide but two meals. Some people still need to eat, especially if like you have a large family and it's not able to, if that like, if those meals are not able to cover everyone's needs. I know there's some that are still continuing to go out to, like, buy groceries or stuff. That's why our organization is trying to strategize on how we can get groceries delivered to the shelters. Um, In the meantime, it would take a lot more support, definitely, to cover all the shelters and meet all that demand. But we're hoping that we can work on something to implement that. When we spoke again two days later, Blanca's team had put together a list of grocery vendors in Juarez. They figure that with $150, they can purchase essential foods for about 200 people. The shelter coordinators will call Abara with their needs. Abara will put the orders in and pay the local vendors, who will deliver the food to the shelters so that people don't have to leave in order to buy groceries. Working with other organizations, they're looking to support about 20 shelters this way in order to maintain a constant flow of food to the shelters as coronavirus hits the city. Two other projects include a water filtration system at a shelter that only has intermittent access to clean water, 
and a renovation project at a shelter with major flooding issues due to poor drainage. To support any of these projects, you can visit abarafrontiers.org to learn more. I really, really want to encourage people right now, like, of course, like, take care of your communities, take care of your families, um, but also remember that you're not just called to, like, take care of, like, your own. You're also take, supposed to take care of your brother and sister. You're supposed to take care of the foreigner and to treat them as your friend. This is another opportunity. This is, like, an opportunity to show how much you, how much love can reach, you know? Thanks for listening to Beyond Soundbites podcast. Please stay tuned for more episodes in coming days and weeks as we hear from other people around the country and the globe about how coronavirus is affecting displaced people and how you can help. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. <laughs>